0: Hi, I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words and the Medal of Honor podcast. This is a standalone interview, but we highly recommend everyone check out our Medal of Honor podcast episode about Sasser before giving this interview a listen. That episode provides helpful background info and a detailed explanation of what Sasser did to earn the Medal of Honor. It's called The Toughest Thing He's Ever Done, SP5 Clarence Eugene Sasser, and you can find the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the interview. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Specialist 5th Class Clarence Sasser. Sasser served in Vietnam as an army medic. Through numerous wounds and excruciating pain, he continuously administered aid to fellow soldiers for 20 hours as his company was attacked in Vietnam.
1: The Huey, the dust-offs medevac helicopters were probably the best thing that happened to those that were injured over there. Um, They saved a lot of lives. Uh, They were first, uh, not in the form of the Huey, but uh, first incorporated into emergency trauma on the battlefield during Korea from the MASH series. It was uh, expanded during Vietnam to the UH, uh, UH-1D helicopters that configured to carry uh, stretchers of injured persons or soldiers. They were the lifesaver of a lot of of people. Uh, The injuries in Vietnam were quite severe, particularly from the booby traps and things like that. There were a lot of booby traps set over in Vietnam. Some were self-effacing ones, others were command-detonated ones. Uh, they were uh crude in the sense of the society that were uh uh utilizing them. Uh, they used what they what they what was available, what they had to use. And because of that, they were somewhat crude. I don't know if it's accurate to say that they were geared more toward maiming than killing. I think they were probably equally. One was just as good as the other as far as they were concerned. But the facts of the matter is they did do considerably uh, a lot of uh, maiming people. Uh, but then that maiming again as versus death was attributable back to the first question with the, uh, the, uh, medevac helicopters. A lot of people that are maimed now would have died. And almost invariably during World War II, these people died because of blood loss, because of the delay in getting them back to, uh, uh, I want to say competent medical care, but we, as combat medics, we thought we were competent also. But to get them back to uh, first rank treatment, uh, people had lost a leg with severe trauma to arteries and veins like that almost invariably died, bled to death. Uh, the Hueys would uh, get them back to that advanced treatment so quickly until a lot of them were saved with, uh, emergency procedures a lot of were, a lot of a lot of soldiers were saved it's probably prudent of me to put a little praise on those people that flew those machines uh if you called them they came if it was in any way possible to get in there they would get in there and because of their attitude their their own bravery a lot of people were saved i know uh, several guys that uh And currently now that were double amputees had parts blown off, lower legs blown off that I know would have died in any other war other than Vietnam. So they were they were remarkable. They had a remarkable record in coming in the hot spots, hot landing zones, picking up people and uh, getting them out. They they did they did wonders. My, I can't praise them enough. I can't praise those pilots enough. What I found the scariest, I guess, the scariest, most difficult thing to do, well, was usually if somebody hit a booby trap, it was either a point man or the first in the lines in the uh, mo- line of movement that hit it. Uh-huh. Invariably, when they hit a booby trap. The medic had to go if it was a command detonated, that meant that somebody was sitting somewhere that pushed a button or threw a lever that detonated that when that soldier got within range. What if he set two there, did one and got the, and injured the person, and then when the medic came to see by him, do the yellow, that was always the Scariest, most difficult thing to deal with that. If I go up here after him, how do I know it's not command detonated? Well, after a little while, you learn to just trust your luck. It sort of breathes a little bit of that. And in fact, it, the whole war bred that type of thought. And if I can interject a a personal opinion is probably the problem with those of us that uh, have had problems readjusting. Oh. It's It promoted a situation of right now, of today. You know, why worry about tomorrow? I, I mean, you know, tomorrow I'll probably be dead. And when you get into a mentality like that, it becomes doubly hard on the mind to uh, get to, shall we say, get out of it. Again, it's personal opinion. Nothing nothing to prove it. Don't want anything to prove it. Don't want to even think about it too much. But uh, it, 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 to me, it promoted a right now type attitude. Or why should I worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow is definitely not promised and I probably won't be here tomorrow. So it's it, it, to me that was the uh the worst thing about it uh was uh, the attitude it promoted in in the soldiers the chance of that uh almost any day any minute you know it could be your last we had the whole range of it you know from sniper type wounds gunshot wounds uh, uh to actual firefight type injuries to uh, various type booby traps, the least of which were uh, the uh, explosive devices. There were also the pungent pits, which were sharpened bamboo, uh, charred spikes that uh, were sort of like, I guess, as TV uh, labels it, uh, tiger traps and everything with a covering over and you fall in on the, on the spikes sticking up. There were severe injuries and a lot of times they were covered with uh, excrement uh, in an effort to produce infection. But yeah, well, I treated the full range of those. Uh, probably the most common uh, problem that I treated was the plain old jungle rot. Uh, we were down in the Mekong Delta, which was down south in the rice paddy area. And uh, movement down there was almost almost always involved water uh water on the skin and uh primitive area such as this was always produces very uh viral uh uh fungus type problems uh Dang biggest thing was the fungus infection. It was preventable to a certain extent, but then after time or over time, it was almost never preventable. Almost everyone had it. And it may seem at first glance to be a minor problem, but once an area becomes macerated, in other words, raw in everything, it, it produced tremendous pain and would really impair a soldier. So the the, the biggest thing was to guard your, your, your guys for, the, for those type problems and make sure that preventive measures were used to reduce the risk of it and uh, to treat it when it did become before it could when it did become active, before it could totally disable the, the soldier. That was probably the most routine thing we did down where I was. We went in uh, to an area on helicopter slicks, we call them. (laughs) Bring back a little memory. Some of them good, some of them bad. But uh, we went into this area on helicopters. uh, The the entire company did. And uh, it turned out to be a fairly hot area. Which was? Uh, I really hate to say, sort of common back then that, uh, you went in the areas and you found more than you expected. But, uh, it's, it was sort of interesting because we were not scheduled for any action. We were a backup company that on that mission. And, uh, we were just to take it easy until, Or if and when another company or someone got into trouble and needed some reinforcement, some backup, or somebody to pull them out, the term we used back then. And uh, we were just cooling in. And uh, orders came down from our battalion headquarters that wanted us to go check out an area that they had found that they suspected may be an area of activity. So we ate that morning and loaded on the helicopters about nine that morning, went into this area, and it was daybreak the next morning before we got out, those of us that lived.
2: So particularly
1: distressing period to remember and everything Probably the hardest part of it all was
2: spending the night with
1: my friends and just listening to them call big for help when you couldn't do anything. You knew some of them were dying, you know they were dying. You know you never see them. some of them again. As for myself, I had been injured fairly severely, but I guess being a medic, I knew that uh, my injuries were not life-threatening. So, you know, other than the pain and the trauma
2: and the fright, it was something. It really was. Hell, I got through it. You know, in
1: times of intense stress such as this, you know, there are certain things that you know need to be done. In this instance, we were trapped in a rice field, no cover whatsoever. You could with enemy troops dug in. Artillery already zeroed in on that position. We were taking severe incoming hits. And the safest thing to do would be to get to the tree line and that's what I was trying to get my guys to do. Take the chance and get to the tree line. You're probably better off
2: than staying out
1: here. We were in dire straits, I guess, probably the best way to put it. Uh, and if you could make it to the wood line, then at least you'd have a little bit of cover other than a thin blade of, of, of rice. Or a thin rice stalk It's one of those things that instinct tells you, I guess. But at any rate, that's what I was doing. Uh, uh, encouraging them to at least try to make it to the woodlines by by trying to get there, it, it, it was a lot better than just laying here waiting on things to to come in to kill you. Probably the <laughs> probably the uh, most striking uh, remembrance of that day was was the leeches. We were in a rice paddy and you of course you couldn't stand up, you had to lay in the water or you the only protection or cover what that 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 was available what were, were the uh the levees the dikes that didn't afford very much protection yeah. and to utilize those you you couldn't stand up you couldn't stand up anyway because of the in, to, incoming and the snipers and the and the uh the the gunfire but uh i remember laying laying in the water and fighting leeches all night and terrible. other than the grit from the dirt they were all dirty and uh uh, first off their rice paddies were, were not like the rice fields i was used to i grew up in this area And this is a rice farming area and had farm rice and worked in rice fields growing up. They were different from ours. We rotated our fields. Their fields were rice fields perpetually. So consequently, there was always a lot of stinking mud. and and I'm sure the people are aware how mud gets when it uh, is continually covered with water. So it was fairly stinky. And everything, and hence the uh, fungus and the leeches that were there. They were different from ours in the sense that they were permanent rice fields. And along with that, go uh, oh, a lot of other diseases and things like that. is always the worst part, and. It's probably the worst part because it is night and you can't see. But the sounds were the sounds of sporadic gunfire, sporadic sniper fire, the sounds of fellow soldiers, I guess, essentially dying. As I mentioned previously, a few minutes ago, probably the worst sound was hearing your fellow soldier, your friend, calling for his mama to help him. You know, there's nothing you can do. There's no help you can do other than comfort. If you could get there, having already been injured, wounded, there's very little I can do. Uh, used up medicals, used up all of my medical supplies. Had found another medic's bag and had used that up. And there's just nothing you can do. Plus, there's the point of tempting fate of even trying, no, trying to uh, find him and, uh, and get to him. Is again a further risk of your life. You know, you have to look at it in context. I lived with these with these guys. They were my friends. We ate, slept, joked, played, parted, and everything else together. Uh, they were friends, and I, I don't think that there is any person alive today that, when a friend has a problem, won't try to help them, and above and beyond. There are two other factors. Number one, it was my job. My job was to take care of them. If they got injured or wounded, my job was to take care of them. That was my job. I had no other job. And the second part of it was nobody needed a medic that wouldn't do this job. Uh, you were accorded a certain amount of status within the unit by virtue of being Doc, the medic. And along with that goes obligations. Uh, one of those obligations is that if I'm hurt, Doc, you'll, you'll, you'll look out for me. Yeah, I'll take care of you. Well, that's a promise. So you put, you throw all of those in together and I refuse to believe that any prudent person wouldn't do it. It's a, it's a, Probably, if I were to guess at it, I would say it's probably one of the reasons the powers that be put the medic with the, with the platoon and had him live with them rather than when they go out to draw a medic as you would draw a carbine or something of that nature. Um, you form ponds, you form camaraderie, and along with that, uh, Go obligations. I felt particularly, particularly strong about it because of that. Uh, within the, the, the platoon, and there, there, there are four, four platoons in a company, and each platoon had a medic. Within the platoon, you were accorded a certain amount of status. For instance, when we were out on long, for long period, extended periods of time, and we were resupplied with sea rations to food, the first case that was broke open, the doc got his choice out of it. Well, you know uh, that there's an obligation to that, and that obligation is that you will do your job when the time comes, regardless. And that's what it is. You could always say, "Well, I don't know. I think it's too hot to go out there. Hot as in." the lid and not the temperature. (laughs) You could always say it's too hot to go out there, but uh, what about that person's friend that's watching what's going on? What's he going to think about you? What's he going to do to you? Remember, we are in a combat zone where there are no laws other than survival and kill the enemy. So what's going to happen if... His friend is out there dying, and you don't refuse to go because you're scared or you may get hurt. You may not get hurt. So what's going to happen? What's he going to do when his friend dies and he say, the doc didn't go? This may find you next time. Next time a firefight break out, you just may be a casualty. Yeah. I have been instances, I'm sure. I can't quote any, but I'm sure there have been instances just as there have been other instances of things that weren't quite proper, but uh, you go, it's your job to go, it's your duty to go.
0: Coming up on 5-Minute News...
1: The whole thing was scary, (laughs) but after a while, even that becomes second nature. That's probably, that's that's what I find one of the most marvelous things about the human psyche, is it gets used to things. No matter how bad it is, it can get used to it, and it will get used to it if it's given enough time. The scariest moments? I had been uh, helping a wounded soldier out, and was going back to what I call my little spot. Where at this point we're still in the rice paddy, and was going back to my spot where a friend was, where I knew that he was laying there. Uh, I didn't dare stand up because obvious reasons. To stand up, the sniper can find me. It was obvious who I was or what I was to anybody, uh, observing the, the area. Medic was a fairly high priority in that you killed a medic and injured people die. So you got a, a much higher casualty rate. And all of a sudden I heard what we had, uh, uh, come to know of as incoming. Uh, if you've been there, you can always tell when it's coming in just from the sound of it. I heard it. I heard it. I knew by the sound and the direction that it was going to land pretty close to me. Uh, The question is, what do you do? Do you freeze and stay or do you try to get away? But again, you have only a few senses to try to figure out w- w- what's going to happen, where it's going to go, and all of that. But I knew this one was coming fairly close to me. So the method I had hit on to uh get around in the rice paddy, and un- uh, understand the, the discussion about rice paddies earlier, They were probably 40, 45% mud with a little layer of water on top. The mud in this uh, rice paddy was at least thigh deep with water up to the waist, and it made moving extremely difficult. So I had hit on the the, the the method of I could grab a handful of rice and just pull myself sliding over the over the water over the mud in the water, and I could move around quicker that way. Plus, I was down and uh, was out of line of sight. In other words, and so. I heard this coming in, and I, oh man, oh Lord, it's going to be close. So I started moving and everything, and got to a uh, and understand when I say the distance, we're not talking over ten or twelve feet, uh, and got to a a intersection of two dikes that formed the cross, and just as I was rolling up, and was going put my back out because I knew it was going to fall. They came down and hit right where I was when I realized that, I, that, it, that when I initially heard it. That to me probably was the scariest moment of knowing that if I didn't do something, it was going to get me. It still sprayed me with shrapnel and all of that, but looking at not life-threatening. As I said, I had my back Sprayed with shrapnel, I had a gunshot wound through the thigh. That was pretty much uh, flesh um, and flesh and muscle. No artery, on nerve, no bone damage. Through the through the arm, and a piece of shrapnel in the side, and a gunshot wound to the head. Well, you, you see somebody down, it's ingrained in you to help them. Uh, that it, it's ingrained in the medics that uh, to help, and it's probably something brought out by the aptitude test that they give you when you go in. I would, I would like to think that's what it what it is, but uh, no medic, or former medic, can refuse can ever not help in someone that's down. Uh, there have been instances since I've uh, been out of the service. When I came up on automobile accidents and the urge to help is there, several such instances uh, was there. Again, it goes back to somebody has to do something. Oh. It's just ingrained in you that uh, your your job is to help people. I had spent time in about five months in Japan, which gave me a little period to adjust to the difference between being in a combat zone and a a regular life. Uh, Being in a combat zone was particularly frustrating to a certain extent because there were no laws. The only law was to kill the enemy and look out, and look out back here. Uh, Society structure, there are things you do, there are things you don't do, as we all know. Uh, and on top of spending that time in Japan, I came back going to Washington to be presented with the Medal of Honor. So I was handled a little bit different from the regular, ordinary soldier that came back. The regular soldier, uh, got on a plane in Vietnam, uh, 18 hours later, he got off a plane in the United States, and eight hours later was on another plane headed home without any time to relax and and, and, and uh, take a deep breath and say, phew, I made it, uh, without any time for adjustment or anything. And, of course, the climate here at that time with the uh, anti-war protests and everything uh, uh, did nothing to help that. In fact, it probably exacerbated any misgivings or any insecurities that he may have. Uh, myself, it was a little bit different. I came back going to Washington to be presented to Melville, and as such was handled a little bit differently, I like to think. I do feel that I did have problems in adjusting to American life at that point, lifestyles at that point, but I don't feel mine were as severe as a lot of the other guys were that came back. There was no thoughts about combat stress or post-traumatic stress disorder, and in fact, it didn't become a recognizable uh, diagnosis until I believe it was 80 or something in 1980 or something or somewhere, 84, somewhere in that range of time. But uh just the, the trauma of going from a society where there are no holes barred to a society where there are structured rules and regulations of something in itself. As I've said a couple of times in Vietnam, the only, the only thing that it was, was to do your job and to look out for your people. All, everything else was sort of like second nature. I'm not saying that that we were, uh, lawless over there or anything, but in combat, those are the only things that uh, matter. Do your job, look out for your, your people, look out for yourself to, here, driving by the speed limit, uh, getting in line, uh, and waiting till your turn, which, believe me, there were lines at certain places over there, the child hold, the PXs, and things like that, but they weren't anywhere near like the lines here, and, uh, uh giving rise to a little bit of impatience, and, and, uh, problems such as that. It, uh, makes life, even though combat is a little bit harder, life is easier and then it's just uh, so many things you got to do. Whereas here, there's everything to do. A medic has been again, uh, a special person uh, throughout all warfare. It's genuinely recognized that some injuries in, in war may not be totally disabling to a soldier. And with sufficient treatment, you regain the use of that soldier. Plus, there's the, the psychological advantage of knowing that if I get hurt, someone's here to take care of me. I, I, won't, I They won't leave me behind to die. That in my estimation, has a bearing on the temperament of a fighting soldier. It's a tradition way back to the Civil War with Dr. Mary Walker, uh, back to the Revolutionary War with medics during then, during during those times. So it, it again, it, it does have a long and glorious history of which I'm especially proud that I fitted in, that I was one. I am uh, especially proud, although I mean nothing by the statement that my medal was awarded for saving lives rather than taking lives. To me, it makes a difference. Although in life it does not make a difference, but to me it makes a difference. It's a point of satisfaction for me we had a, a chaplain in the company but chaplains were uh at least company grade uh-huh. and uh but that is another part of a medic's. a, a, a medic's job uh i guess sort of like a, 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 as a listener psychiatric type counselor to to the people to the uh soldiers i should say and uh you listen and you talk to them and you discuss girlfriends and Dear John letters and things of that nature and pats on the back for good job and all of that. And, uh, and, uh it's just, uh, it, it has a tremendous settling effect on the troops to know that if something happened, doc will be there. Doc will take care of me. Yeah. It's a tremendous psychological advantage, I think. I Again, a reason for him to be with him. Yeah, you look out for your people. You, it's again part of his job. His job is the, the welfare, the care, the health, the health of the entire platoon. If one has a problem, it's just like a mother hen. If, if, if one has a problem, you go get him and you go try to, try to square it away. Uh, whatever, if you had to go to the, to the CEO about it, whatever, you did it. Whatever they, the guys came to you about, you tried to work with it. Uh, and, and of course that, there's also that little point about confidant in in the equation too. Uh, you listen to their cares, their troubles, their fears. If it warranted action, it was your job to do it. Oh, it, it was a mother hen type situation, in that you looked out for your people. You, you did whatever you thought would help this person to be a better soldier. To particularly when you were out in the field, in the base camp there were other avenues for them, but out in the field it was your job to look after their welfare. It was your job to stand up for them. If their injuries were such that they needed to go back in, it was your job to get to the CO to get him back in. Without a doubt, you have a lot of them die in your arms and that's not a good feeling. Depends on where it was. Of course, in TV, you always see them saying the last words and all of that. Then an exhalation of breath, and then they're dead. A lot of times they're unconscious when you got there. There was no such thing as confession.
2: Just a matter of... Just a matter of holding them and trying to get them on cross to the other side. Nothing you could do. Happens a lot. Happened a lot. But life goes on. We, we adapt to those type things. Hope it doesn't. Hope it doesn't stay around to affect you too long. But we life goes on.
1: I I got joy out of it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the. The camaraderie, I enjoyed the status that it uh, bestowed on on me. Um, I'm, I was, I'm a people person. I was a people person before, and it fell in with that. Had it to do over again, I don't have any regrets. <laughs> I mean, you know, I could leave out the injuries and all of that, as I'm sure everybody would, but... Other than that, I don't have any regrets. I am intensely proud to be a, to have won a Mellow Up and awarded a Mellow since most people think you win it, but really you don't win it. It's, it's I guess, technically, mm, that everything. I'm intensely proud to be a Mellow recipient. To me, it, it epitomizes that I did my job. Nothing more, nothing less. To those that maybe see me and uh, remember those days back there, uh, my hat's off to you. I'm glad you made it. I'm glad I made it. Thanks for the good times. Thanks for the bad times. To those that see it then without any idea of what it's like, believe me, it's not easy. But it's necessary. It's part of being uh, an American and part of enjoying the benefits of this society. I know most of the guys, and we all know each other. We get together every year and have oh, for publicity sessions and all that good stuff. But probably the central vein or, or theme among all of us is that something had to be done. Uh, these are people that uh, are, well, oh, to me, some of the greatest people in on the face of this earth. Uh, probably the 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 uh, biggest thrill I find out of it all is is being in society with people like Pappy Boynton, the the, uh, the old World War II uh, Marine fighter pilot ace, and General Doolittle. And, All of these people, Artie Murphy, man, this was something to me to be in their their, their, uh, company and be considered as an equal to them. And that, to me, was something. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, Some of the more flamboyant military person, people in the world, in this society. and To me, it's, it's something great to be Uh, in the same group as they are.
0: That was Specialist 5th Class Clarence Sasser. Thanks for listening to Warriors In Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors In Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project, Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean ruhl is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloia, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
1: It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, The conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My
0: Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious
1: POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.